Father, as we come to your word, we know that to have the mind of Christ is to be immersed in the truth of the scriptures, have our eyes opened to the truth of the scriptures and the Spirit's power to apply the word of God. And so we we come here tired, many of us. It's been a long week. We come here beginning a fall program and Sunday school and a new CE hour launch and so many different activities happening. I pray that you would keep us from distraction, that you would help us as a church to pray the words of David in Psalm 19, verse 14, that the words that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And we pray that, Lord, as a church. Help us now as we come to your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Mary sat at the feet of Jesus and she was listening to his word. And Jesus' commentary on that was she chose the good portion, the good meal. She chose the one needful thing. She listened to the logos, to the word of Christ. Now the word of Christ we hold in this book. Kids, I want you to find your Bible and if, if you didn't remember to bring your Bible today, that's okay. But it's always good, I think, to bring a copy of the Bible to the church service. Take a look. Take a look at what it says on, on the back of the Bible. It says, Holy Bible. And no, Brandon and I did not talk about what we were going to speak today at all. It says, Holy Bible. What does holy mean in the context of the Bible? It means pure, completely other, without flaw. From the very beginning, the church has believed in a holy Bible. That is a Bible that is without error, no mistakes, and is therefore authoritative in our lives. There's no wiggle room when we come to the Scriptures because there's no error here and it's authoritative then for our life. We come to a holy Bible. We come to a Bible that is unbreakable. In his preface on his uh, work on the doctrine of the Trinity, Augustine warned, quotes, do not follow my writings as Holy Scripture. When you find in Holy Scripture anything 
that you did not believe before, believe it without doubt. But in my writings, you should hold nothing for certain, end quote. Or Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, Luther at the time of the resurgence of standing upon the Word of God wrote in his famous table talk, almost a journal of some of the conversations that he would have with friends and students in his, in his house over the Word of God. He wrote this, quotes, We must make a great difference between God's Word and the Word of man. A man's Word is a little sound that flies into the air and soon vanishes. But the Word of God is greater than heaven and earth. Yea, greater than death and hell. And it forms part of the power of God and endures everlastingly. End quotes. But something happened in the history of the church. The history of civilization, really. There was a great shift at the turn of the 18th century at a time in, our, in the history called the Enlightenment. Enlightenment is supposedly man's growth out of immaturity, learning to think for himself without the aid of the Bible, without the aid of the church, without the aid of authority. A tremendous shift in authority took place in the days of the so-called Enlightenment. And the Bible began to be treated as any other book. An amazing book, a book that gives much good, much wisdom there, but a book with mistakes. Man's reason, man's brain and innate abilities were elevated above the book above what was once God's authoritative revelation. Of course, that took up steam as the 19th century dawned and the, the inerrancy, which means there's no errors, the inerrancy of the Bible was rejected by modern scholarship, especially over in Europe. And, and it was not long before this attack picked up steam against the Scriptures. And it didn't take long at all for that attack to find its way from the shores of Europe onto the shores of the New World, into the shores of America. And so at the turn of the 20th century, the lines in the battle of the Bible were drawn on American soil. It was ugly. The old Princetonian theologians, some of my favorites like Machen and B.B. Warfield, argued for the inerrancy of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, while the liberal enlightenment thought spread like cancer, entering into Christian churches, entering into Christian pulpits, and finding their way into the seminaries that once stood for the Word of God. And as a reaction to this, there were some fundamentalists in the early 20th century that became very caustic and unloving and militant in abhorring scholarship, abhorring in-depth biblical study and distancing themselves from other professing evangelicals throwing out the baby with the bathwater. 
and new evangelicals desiring to distance themselves from this nasty version of fundamentalism began to cooperate then with apostate Christianity, and it was not long till then cracks began to form in the foundation of evangelicalism. I think one of the largest cracks happened in 1947 when Daniel Fuller, son of the founder of Fuller Theological Seminary, argued in December of 1962 that the Bible includes historical and scientific mistakes. His view carried the day and a flagship evangelical seminary backed away from an inerrancy of Scripture. And in 1976, a man named Harold Linzel wrote The Battle for the Bible, begging his new evangelical friends to return to the inerrancy and therefore the authority of Scripture. But his voice was scoffed at, in many ways silenced. And today we are still in the trenches for this battle of the Bible and I'm afraid we are losing this battle among so-called Christian circles. Why is the doctrine of eternal punishment questioned so freely? Why are there many ways to heaven other than the one mediator, the man Jesus? Why is there an acceptance and promotion of homosexuality among certain evangelical individuals and denominations? I'll tell you, I would argue that the slipping of orthodox doctrine is linked to the loss of a holy Bible, an inerrant, pure Bible, stripping the Word of God of authority. And when the Bible is stripped of authority, any view can carry the day. And so listen, the attack on the inerrancy of the Word of God ultimately will lead to an attack on the Gospel itself. So Linzel is right when he wrote in the Battle of the Bible, quotes, once biblical authority is surrendered, it leads to the most undesirable consequences. In the end, it will, sorry, it will end in apostasy at last. It is my opinion that it, it, is the, it is next to impossible to stop the process of theological deterioration once inerrancy is abandoned, in quotes. The Holy Bible is not so holy in Christianity today. But Jesus, in the text that was read this morning, says something very different. And if we're going to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to His Word, then I want you to know we've got to take it to the bank. We've got to believe the Word that He speaks to us. We don't get to wiggle room. If He says it, that settles it. It's not, it says it, I believe it, and that settles it. No. What do you have to do with this? It says it, and that settles it. If we're going to sit at the feet of Jesus and come to this teaching on prayer next week, we're going to need to change some things. And if we're going to change some things, we don't have wiggle room if we see it in the Word. Since the Scripture cannot be broken, we ought to build our church, our families, and each of our individual lives upon its unchanging truth. Take your Bibles then and turn back to John chapter 10 and verse 34. John chapter 10 verse 34. Now, as you're turning, kids, you can negotiate with your parents. But if you have enough bulletin inserts, there's a lot of blanks today. 
Let's see if you can get all of them filled in. If you can, maybe your parents should do something about that. A prize or something. Adults, you're tired. Well, you can nap later because we're not napping today in this sermon. This is going to be, it's going to take a little sip of water. And we're, this is a theological sermon. This is a lecture of theology where sermon, a sermon will break out from time to time. Okay, so here we go. Be patient. The Vikings already played. Here we go. We're going to look at the unbreakable Scripture, the doctrine of inerrancy under four headings. First, we're going to look at, number one, in your outline, the definition of inerrancy. The definition of inerrancy. Inerrancy, kids, it just means there's no mistakes. There's no mess-ups. There's no mistake, there's no error in the Scripture. Wayne Grudem more fully states a definition of this inerrancy. He says, quotes, It means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Close quotes. Or we could say it this way. The Scripture is accurate. The Scripture is true. It's never false. It's always accurate. Or, what is affirmed in the Scripture is a correct statement of facts and principles. Or, the Scripture tells the truth about what it says. Everything that it talks about. That is the definition of inerrancy. Now with that definition of in mind, I want you to look at John chapter 10 and our passage. Start at verse 30. Jesus says, and it didn't go over very well, I and the Father are one. And the Jews picked up stones again to stone Him because words meant something and they understood the words. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered Him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy... And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God, Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and look at what Jesus says, and the scripture cannot be broken. One of the most powerful and important parenthetical remarks and all of the Word of God. If He called them gods to whom the Word of God came and the Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of Him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? The Scripture cannot be broken. Now, with that in mind, the definition and Jesus saying the we have an unbreakable Word of God. We come secondly then to the challenges to inerrancy. The challenges to inerrancy. I'm going to mention all five. I'm not going to talk about one of them. I'm just going to fill the blank in so the kids can get their prize afterwards. 
So listen carefully. Number one, here's a challenge. Here is what is said, hey, we don't think you should go to inerrancy of the Scriptures for these reasons. Number one, look, the Bible is only authoritative for faith and practice. The Bible is only authoritative for faith and practice. Lighten up, Jeff. Lighten up, you conservative evangelicals. Lighten up. It's really, really good for faith and practice. But small errors in historical details or scientific facts are not so big. After all, these errors don't really concern faith or ethical conduct, right? So the first challenge to inerrancy is the common sense challenge from the church. Look, inerrancy extends only to general faith and practice. And that leads to number two. They say inerrancy is a very poor term. Inerrancy is a poor term. Look, we're going to get ourselves in troubles. We have a hard enough time making it as Christians in this world with all the thoughts that fly around. If we're going to hold this book to some standard, we're going to get in trouble. Inerrancy is a poor term. We don't want to paint ourselves into a corner and demand an absolute kind of precision on areas of archaeology or history. And by the way, where are you getting this word inerrancy? I don't even see that word in the Bible itself. And so the second challenge is inerrancy is a poor term. Why do we want to demand that kind of accuracy from the Bible? We're already hurting as it is in the church. Number three, challenge to inerrancy. And this is a big one. And this one you got to listen carefully. And I've and I have a sermon you can listen to, to to learn more about this. Number three, there are no inerrant New Testament manuscripts in our possession. Is that in there? Is that one of the blanks? I hope. There are no inerrant New Testament manuscripts in our possession. So, Brother Jeff, your term is misleading. The manuscripts we have of the New Testament, the over almost 6,000 manuscripts that we have, have a few scribal copy errors or what's called textual variants in them. So using inerrancy is not really a fair term, it is argued. Well, yes, we believe in the inerrancy, listen, of the original manuscripts and watch this and we do not possess the original manuscripts but we know for certain over 99% of the words of the original manuscripts in the order of those words due to an exact confluence an exact congruency an overlap of the over 5,000 copies of manuscripts in other words, they agree 99% of the time those manuscripts that are buried in Alexandria and buried over here in Antioch and buried over here separated by the province of God so they cannot be corrupted by one evil regime and therefore ruin the Scriptures. God preserved His Word. 
So we have 1% of textual variance of 90% of that 1% exegetes like myself and others look at it and can easily see when you compare the older manuscripts, you can easily see what the original reading was. And so now we're stuck with 0.1% variance. And of that 0.1% variance, where we're unclear, it's very few, it doesn't impact the doctrine of the church as well. So I agree with Grudem that our present manuscripts are for, the, are for most purposes the same as the original manuscripts. And the doctrine of inerrancy directly concerns our present manuscripts as well, end quote. And so if you want to learn more about this, then we can get a sermon for you dated 4-11-2011. A sermon entitled, Where Do We Begin? You want to hear a whole sermon on this. Okay, for kids, I'm not going to talk about number four, but if you want to get the blanks, here it is. Number four, another challenge to inerrancy. It is said by the super spiritual Christian elite that inerrancy minimizes the human aspect in writing Scripture and overemphasizes the divine. And I'm not going to get into it, but I would just tell you this. The intent of the author is the divine intent. There's a confluence. In God wrote the Word of God through holy men. They wrote out of their own experience, and yet God was writing exactly what He wanted to be written. So we need to... We need to not overemphasize the human over the divine or the divine over the human when it comes to interpretation of the Bible or the doctrine of inerrancy. But we're not going to say any more about that one. Let's go to number five. It is said, okay, well, if if I didn't win the debate with those four, here's the deal. There are clear errors in the Scripture, it is said. Number five, there are clear errors. That's a challenge to inerrancy. There are clear errors in the Scripture. Most who deny inerrancy believe they know of clear errors in the Bible. And that conviction is a major factor in persuading them to challenge the doctrine of inerrancy. You know what I ask? Show me one. When you ask that, typically they don't know one. They just heard that. Show me one. Many times people, even scholars, will not be able to reply They've simply heard that they're errors, and it's a word-of-mouth error. And we'll say more about that later. So the opponents to inerrancy challenge the Bible by saying that it's authoritative for faith and practice only, that the term inerrant is poor, there are no inerrant manuscripts today, it minimizes the human aspect of the production of Scripture, And there are clear errors in the Bible. Well, how do we respond to these challenges? And that brings me to the third point. The argument for inerrancy. The argument for inerrancy. How we're going to tackle this is we're going to look at our specific text. So I hope you're there in John chapter 10. And then we're going to look at a general argument. First, our specific text and then a general argument for inerrancy. Now, in our text in John chapter 10, remember the Jewish leaders were surrounding Jesus with big rocks in their hands. They're circling Him. They're about to stone Him. 
because they think he's blasphemed because he made himself out to be God. They got that right better than most of Christianity. God was standing before them in the flesh. The Jews knew exactly what his words meant, and Jesus meant, because they said, you being a man, make yourself out to be God. And Jesus first appeals to his works. Hey, for what good work are you stoning me? And they say, no, we're not talking about that. That's actually pretty cool. Here's what we're talking about. Verse 33, the Jews answered him of John 10, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And what does Jesus do to to win and to shut their mouth? He appeals to what? The Scripture. Their own Scripture. He says, Has it not been written in your law, I said you are gods? So Jesus quotes this obscure little passage you've probably not even heard of. He, He appeals to this little passage... Haven't you read, I said you are gods in your scriptures? That is actually a quote from Psalm 82 and verse 6. Anybody know Psalm 82? Anybody ever heard of that? Jesus appealed to it. And Jesus is arguing, hey, Psalm 82 says, I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and and he says, now listen to me, my argument's tight and the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Now we can't get into the argument, but here's here's basically the argument for fun. He calls Jewish, in Psalm 82, Jewish rulers who represent God's authority to the people, they're called small g gods because they're commissioned by God to represent His authority to the people in in the book of Psalms. And Jesus says, are you kidding me? These human representatives? How much more the Messiah, the representation? How much more should I be called the Son of God since I was consecrated by God and sent from heaven itself? The Word of God did not just come to me like it just came to you. I am the Word of God. And so he's making this strong argument, a tremendous argument that couldn't be answered. And I've got a sermon on that if you want to hear the whole thing. An authoritative argument because it was based on what? the scripture and he argues now we're let me let's play ball here let's let's know the rules we all agree the scripture cannot be broken why do they have authority they cannot be broken literally that word for cannot be broken is not able to be broken it's not possible jesus says they're not able to be the word translated broken has the idea of being untied or unraveled to the point of destruction. The argument of the liberals will never unravel the Scriptures to the point of their destruction. You can't unravel the Scripture. Jesus' point is clear. The Scriptures cannot be emptied of their force 
by being shown to be erroneous. And since they cannot be broken, I can quote this scripture with the authority of God Himself. Now this is incredible. Jesus quotes Psalm 82 verse 6. I said you are God's. His whole argument is based on one word of a psalm you've never heard of. And not only one word, but a plural of it. Not a famous passage. This whole argument stands or falls on one little word. One little word of a psalm you've never heard of. So, that's our argument for inerrancy from the mouth of Jesus from our specific text. But let's secondly look at our general argument. Okay, and this is where we get to learn some theology. Our general argument for the fact that there's no errors in the Scripture. I'm going to give you a five-fold proof from the scholar, a good one, Paul Feinberg. Okay, kids, here you go. Fill it out so you can get your ice cream cone from your parents. Number one, the Bible's teaching concerning the, and you don't have to spell it right to get the ice cream, concerning the accreditation of God's message and messengers. What does the Bible teach concerning the accreditation of God's message and messengers? Well, write this reference down and I'll just read it. If you're fast, you can turn to it, but Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 20. Deuteronomy 18 and verse 20 says this, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? Well, Verse 22 of Deuteronomy 18, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. God's prophets, God's messengers speak the truth. And if they don't, they're dead. It's not from God. It says a little something about even the New Testament gift of prophecy, I think. Number two, consider the Bible's teaching concerning inspiration. Consider the Bible's teaching concerning inspiration. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. This is what the Bible says about itself, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture, verse 16, all Scripture, and he's talking about predominantly the Old Testament because the New Testament was being written. All Scripture is, listen to this, breathed out by God. How much of Scripture is what? God breathed. is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Understand that this Bible, all of it, 
is breathed out by God. You already know where that's going when it comes to the doctrine of inerrancy. But we'll get to it. Number three, in this argu- our general argument for inerrancy, the Bible's teaching concerning its own unbreakable authority and truthfulness. And we could go everywhere. I'm going to give you just two verses of the Bible's teaching concerning its own unbreakable authority and truthfulness. Psalm 12, verse 6. Psalm 12. Write these references down and look them up later. Psalm 12, verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Or how about Proverbs 30 and verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. And by the way, if the first half of that verse isn't accurate, then He is a poor shield. Because you can't take His promises to the bank. Let me read the verse again in light of that. Proverbs 30, verse 5, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Fourth of our general argument, the Bible's teaching concerning its own use of previous Old Testament Scripture. Okay, the Bible's teaching concerning its own use of previous Old Testament Scripture. We already said that Jesus uses the single word gods out of Psalm 82 to prove his point. Paul, Paul uses in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16. Paul says this in Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. That is a quote from Genesis 12, verse 7 from the Abrahamic covenant. And, and Paul makes his whole argument, really the whole argument of the book of Galatians, is made over whether or not the word offspring is singular or plural from the Old Testament text. Jesus shuts the mouth of the the Sadducees who say there's no resurrection. And He does this in Matthew 22 based on the tense of a verb. Jesus says in Matthew 22, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what what was said to you by God in the Old Testament, he, Jesus then says, I, now Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead when this is written. And, and it was written, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the living. The Scriptures say He, he is the God of these dead guys. So, they're alive. He doesn't say I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He makes his whole argument based on the tense of one verb. And so the Bible uses its own scriptures to the very word and the very tense of a verb which argues for the doctrine of an inerrant scripture. And finally, the Bible's teaching concerning the character of God. The Bible's teaching concerning the character of God. Titus 1, verse 2. In the hope of eternal life, which God, 
who never lies promised before the ages began. Now, God always tells the truth. He never lies. The Bible is God's Word. Therefore, the Bible is completely truthful and without error. So that's a general argument, a specific argument from our text in John 10 and a broad argument for inerrancy. The Scripture is going to be fulfilled in that kind of detail, says S. Lewis Johnson. And nothing could be stronger in the affirmation of the authority of the Word of God than the previous Scripture's use of the Scripture. So we've seen the definition, the challenges, and the argument for inerrancy. Four, let's get to the so what. Listen carefully. What is the impact of inerrancy? Why is it important? And we're going to look at the impact within the church, and there we're going to look at the impact for you and me. And I'll go quickly here. Now, if I'm just going to say it, I'm going to give you one example of it, and I've got to go quickly. But I'm telling you that if you give up the doctrine of inerrancy, you will give up the gospel. It's just a matter of time. It's happening all around us. One example is this, the Trinity. Now, are you in John chapter 10? You know, the whole thing that started this where Jesus says in verse 30, I and the Father are one. Okay. We believe in the Trinity. Raise your hand. And everyone should do this, so I'm going to give you a hint. Everyone raise your hand. Everyone raise your hand if you believe in the Trinity. Now, praise God, I'm not going to say, keep your hands up and let's define it. But I can tell you, if you're a Christian, you're not actively opposing the doctrine of the Trinity. You may not be able to articulate it yet, well, but you will not oppose it. Here's the doctrine. Within the one being, within the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Trinitarian heresy has sprung up all throughout the church. And there was one promoted by a man named Sibelius. It was called modalism. There is one God, and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are fully God, but there's no real distinctions in the persons, Sibelius said. And so, just as I'm one man, got it? I manifest from time to time as a preacher. I manifest from time to time as a father. I manifest from time to time as a radiologist. You get it? And it just depends on what I'm doing, but I'm one man. And so also with God, said Sibelius. God manifests Himself as the Father, as the Son, as the Holy Spirit at different times and in different roles and functions. But that destroys the, person of the personal distinctions in the Trinity. And it destroys the Gospel itself. It's heresy. And it's alive and well with oneness Pentecostalism personified these days by T.D. Jakes. And the modalists love to come to this verse and say, see, here it is. I and the Father are one. One person, they say. Unity, see? 
And, I, and we come to an inerrant Scripture and we say, wait a minute, let's look at the actual text itself and the verb tenses. The text says, I and the Father, we, plural, are one. He uses a plural verb in the Greek. Jesus is very specific. He's not saying, I am the Father. No, the distinction in person is present in even the plural verb tense. And the word one is not masculine. It should be masculine if it was one person. But it's neuter in Greek. So the masculine could be translated one person. The the neuter points to a unity not in personhood, but a unity in power of essence of nature. A qualitative unity. And so Jesus is specific. He's got the whole doctrine of the Trinity in one verse. It is perfection because of the inerrancy of the Word of God. And if you do not if you throw out the verbal inerrancy, you will throw out the Trinity and you will throw out the finished work of Christ. Eventually, you will throw out the Gospel itself. You say, who cares? Well, the Father from before times eternal out of love set His love upon a people. He chose a people. And He said to His Son, will you go for them? And He went and He took upon flesh and He died in the place of, for those for whom God had chosen. And the, Holy, and the Holy Spirit blew like the wind, which means He didn't blow willy-nilly. He blew according to the unity of the, of the person of the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit as a person in time came to you in power and showed you the glory, not of Himself, but the glory of the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you throw that out, the Gospel, strip Jesus of His deity, the Gospel's finished. Remove the Father, you have no Gospel. Obliterate the Spirit, the Gospel ceases to exist. The Gospel stands or falls with the doctrine of this Trinity. Jesus Himself says, let me remind you, the Scripture cannot be broken. So if you're church, if we're going to deny the doctrine of inerrancy, we will undermine the Gospel. And because we believe, secondly, in inerrancy, and this one I'm not going to talk about long because I talk about it all the time, Inerrancy necessitates expository preaching. If I get to pick willy-nilly whatever verse I want, my idea reigns, my reason, my intellect, then I can come and say, I want to talk about this, and go find me some proof text. But if the Word of God is inerrant and therefore authoritative and the very detail in its context that I'm, I'm a servant of the Word of God and I must come under it. And it's not even about me at all. I must explain what the text means in its context and have the Holy Spirit impress the truth upon the lives of this church. And that necessitates then, as MacArthur has said, quotes, should not our preaching be biblical exposition reflecting our conviction that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant Word of God? The only logical response to inerrant Scripture then is to preach it expositionally in quotes. Unfortunately, since the Bible is our authority, if I'm preaching up here and the Spirit's working and you know that that text is rightly interpreted, it's, it binds your conscience. 
I'm not interested in any man, woman, or child binding my conscience. Do not come to me and say, thus saith the Lord, and tell me God said for me to go to Africa. My conscience is bound by the Word of God. But it is bound. It is bound by the Bible. Come here at your own risk. So for our visitors here, I just want you to know our conviction is to obey the Apostle Paul's charge. In 2 Timothy 4.1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. This means something for the church. Inerrancy will protect the Gospel and inerrancy will demand a textual-based preaching of the Word. Now, the inerrancy also impacts not just the sphere of the church, but has an impact on you and me as individuals. So here it is. I'm going to get real practical. You're like, it's about time. How does this impact us? What do we do, brothers and sisters, when the Bible seems to contradict itself? What do we do? Well, let me give you some pastoral advice. Number one, look carefully at the text and read before and after. The solution often presents itself even with a careful English reading in its context. Number two, what do you do? Turn to a solid commentary on your passage. That might help. Sometimes really good commentaries help explain what stands. We hold a holy Bible. People have died for this book. In the year 1540, in eastern England, a man named James Morton was burned at the stake for reading James' epistle in English. Why is this book worth dying for? Because the Word of God is the way God is revealed. Because the Word of God is the only way that man is redeemed. For in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the Word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. The Word of what? The Word of truth. For the Scripture cannot be broken. Father, thank You for Your Word as we pray after we preach. We're thankful for it because it's Your Word. Thank You that You superintended its writing so holy men spoke from You. Thank You that it's the life-giving Word, honey, to us. Everything that we need for life and godliness. And Father, as we move into this new season of Bible study in the book of Galatians, as we move into the season of children's discipleship ministry and CER and learn to study the Word of God for ourselves. As we come to our devotions and the preaching of the Word of God, may we remember 
that the Word of God cannot be broken. Commend this to our hearts now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.